At 12.42 a.m. on March 8, 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370, a Boeing 777, took off from Kuala Lumpur and turned toward Beijing, climbing to its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. 27-year-old Fariq Hamid was flying the airplane. This was a training flight for Fariq, the last one. He would soon be fully certified. His trainer was 53-year-old Zahari Ahmad Shah, who was one of the most senior captains at Malaysia Airlines. In the cabin were 10 flight attendants, all of them Malaysian. The flight had 227 passengers, including five children. Most of the passengers were Chinese. Of the rest, 38 were Malaysian, and the others came from Indonesia, Australia, India, France, the United States, Iran, Ukraine, Canada, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Russia, and Taiwan. Up in the cockpit, Zahari handled the radio. At 1.01 a.m., he radioed that they had leveled off at 35,000 feet. At 1.08, the flight crossed the Malaysian coastline and set out across the South China Sea in the direction of Vietnam. Zahari again reported the plane's level at 35,000 feet. Eleven minutes later, as the airplane closed in on a waypoint near the start of the Vietnamese air traffic jurisdiction, the controller at Kuala Lumpur radioed to the airline and Zahari answered normally. It was the last the world heard from Flight 370. The pilots never checked in or answered any of the subsequent attempts to contact them. Air traffic control systems use what is known as secondary radar. It depends on a transponder signal that is transmitted by each airplane. Seconds after Flight 370 crossed into Vietnamese airspace, the symbol representing its transponder dropped from the screens of Malaysian air traffic control and then the entire airplane disappeared from secondary radar. The time was 1.21 a.m., 39 minutes after takeoff. The Vietnamese controllers saw the flight cross into their airspace and then disappear from radar. They tried repeatedly to contact the aircraft. By the time they picked up the phone to inform Kuala Lumpur, 18 minutes had passed since Flight 370's disappearance from the radar screens. Hours went by before an emergency response was finally initiated at 6.32 a.m., around the time when the aircraft should have been landing in Beijing. The search for the missing plane was initially concentrated in the South China Sea, between Malaysia and Vietnam. It was an international effort by 34 ships and 28 aircraft from seven different countries. But Flight 370 was nowhere near there. Within a few days, primary radar records revealed that as soon as Flight 370 disappeared from secondary radar, it turned sharply to the southwest, flew back across the Malay Peninsula, and banked around the island of Penang. From there, it flew northwest up the Strait of Malacca and out across the Andaman Sea, where it faded beyond radar range. The mystery surrounding Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 has been a focus of continued investigation and a source of a lot of public speculation 
since the exact location that the aircraft went down still remains unknown. After the disappearance, the truth about Flight 370's strange flight path began to emerge. It turned out that Flight 370 had continued to link up intermittently with a geostationary Indian Ocean satellite operated by Inmarsat, a commercial vendor in London, for six hours after the airplane disappeared from secondary radar. This meant that the airplane had not suddenly suffered some catastrophic event. During those six hours, it is presumed to have remained in high-speed, high-altitude cruising flight. Calculations of likely flight paths place the airplane's endpoint in Kazakhstan if the airplane turned north, or in the southern Indian Ocean if it turned south. Technical analysis indicated with near certainty that the airplane turned south. Inmarsat technicians in London were able to discern a significant distortion suggesting a turn to the south at 2.40 a.m. The turn point was a bit north and west of Sumatra, the northernmost island of Indonesia. It has been assumed that the airplane then flew straight and level for a very long while, in the general direction of Antarctica. After six hours, the data indicated a steep descent, as much as five times greater than a normal descent rate. The plane dove into the ocean. Judging from the electronic evidence, this was not a controlled attempt at a water landing. However, no one knew where the impact had occurred, or if the satellite interpretations were even correct. The initial search of surface waters ended in April 2014, after nearly two months of efforts, and the focus shifted to the ocean depths. Although the Malaysians were nominally in charge of the entire investigation, they lacked the means and expertise to mount a subsea search and recovery effort. The Australians took the lead. The areas of the Indian Ocean that the satellite data pointed to, about 1,200 miles southwest of Perth, a city in Australia, were so deep and unexplored that the first challenge was to map the undersea topography sufficiently to allow side-scanning sonar vehicles to be safely towed miles beneath the surface. On July 29, 2015, about 16 months after the aircraft went missing, a municipal beach cleanup crew on the French island of Réunion came upon a torn piece of airfoil about six feet long that seemed to have just washed ashore. The foreman of the crew, a man named Johnny Begg, realized that it might have come from an airplane, but he had no idea which one. A team of police showed up and took the piece away. It was quickly determined to be part of a Boeing 777. The piece was a control surface called a flapperon that is attached to the trailing edge of the wings. Subsequent examination of serial numbers showed that it had come from Flight 370. Here was the necessary physical evidence that the flight had ended violently in the Indian Ocean. Then, in February of 2016, a middle-aged American man, Blaine Gibson, who had been traveling around independently and following leads relating to Flight 370's disappearance, found another piece. He had visited Mozambique in search of aircraft debris based on information given to him from oceanographers. In a town called Vilanculos, he paid a boatman named Suleiman 
to take him to a sandbank called Paluma, where debris often washed up. While they were searching the sandbank, Suleiman found a gray triangular scrap about two feet across with the stenciled words, no step on one surface. The scrap was later determined to be almost certainly from Flight 370. In June 2016, Blaine Gibson turned his attention to the remote northeastern shores of Madagascar. He found three aircraft pieces on the first day, and another two a few days later. The following week, on a beach eight miles away, three more pieces were delivered to him. Word got around that Gibson would pay for Flight 370 debris. Of the several dozen pieces that have been identified as certain, likely, or suspected to have come from Flight 370, Gibson has been responsible for the discovery of roughly a third. After more than three years and about $160 million, the Australian underwater investigation closed without success. It was picked up in 2018 by an American company called Ocean Infinity, under contract with the Malaysian government on a no-find, no-fee basis. The search used advanced underwater surveillance vehicles and covered a new section. After a few months, it too ended in failure. The second official investigation belonged to the Malaysian police and amounted to background checks of everyone on the airplane as well as some of their friends. Outside of professional investigations, the internet has produced a number of theories over the years. Some of the claims include that the aircraft has been found intact in the Cambodian jungle, that it was seen landing in an Indonesian river, that it flew into a time warp, and that it was sucked into a black hole. However, some things are known with a good amount of certainty about the disappearance of Flight 370. First, the disappearance was an intentional act. Second, control was seized from within the cockpit. Primary radar records later indicated that whoever was flying the plane must have switched off the autopilot because the turn the airplane made to the southwest was so tight that it had to have been flown by hand. Circumstances suggest that whoever was at the controls deliberately depressurized the airplane. At about the same time, much, if not all, of the electrical system was deliberately shut down. The reasons for that shutdown are not known, but one of its effects was to temporarily sever the satellite link. An electrical engineer in Boulder, Colorado, named Mike Exner, has studied the radar data extensively and believes that during the turn, the airplane climbed up to 40,000 feet, which was close to its limit. During the maneuver, the passengers would have experienced the feeling of being suddenly pressed back into their seat. Exner believes the reason for the climb was to accelerate the effects of depressurizing the airplane, causing the rapid incapacitation and death of everybody in the cabin, as intentional depressurization would have been probably the only way to subdue a potentially unruly cabin in an airplane that was going to remain in flight for hours to come. In the cabin, the effect would have gone unnoticed except for the sudden appearance of the drop-down oxygen masks. None of the cabin masks were intended for more than about 15 minutes of use during emergency descents to altitudes below 13,000 feet. 
they would have been of no value at all cruising at 40,000 feet. The cabin occupants would have become incapacitated within a couple of minutes, lost consciousness, and gently died without any choking or gasping for air. The cockpit, by contrast, was equipped with four pressurized oxygen masks, linked to hours of oxygen supply. Whoever depressurized the airplane would have simply had to put one on. So, the evidence suggests that it was most likely one of the pilots that sabotaged the plane. By the time the airplane dropped from the view of secondary radar, it is likely that one of the pilots was incapacitated or dead or had been locked out of the cockpit. The young pilot, Farik, has been described as optimistic, with plans to get married. The senior pilot, Zahari, raises more red flags. The Malaysian police report held back on divulging what was known about Zahari. The police discovered aspects of Zahari's life that should have caused them to dig more deeply. People who knew Zahari described him as often lonely and sad. His wife had moved out and was living in the family's second house. By his own admission to friends, he spent a lot of time pacing empty rooms waiting for the days between flights to go by. So currently, unless more evidence is discovered in the future, Zahari is the prime suspect.